This is the Menopause Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Gordon. Now here at the Menopause Movement, we've surveyed over 50,000 menopausal women. And through this, we've discovered that the number one cause of menopausal suffering for our clients is weight gain. Now you've said things like, how do I lose the mental belly? I don't recognize myself anymore. How can I get me back? When menopause hit me out of the blue, I had no idea what was happening. And when I gained about 50 pounds overnight, I hated what I saw in the mirror. The menopause movement exists to provide world-class transformational education to women who are suffering from the symptoms and effects of menopause. And we're here to give you the education you need to get your life back. We want menopause to be the best time of your life. I mean, it is for me and I want that for you. After years of trial and error, I finally cracked the code with my menopause weight. And now I want to share with you how I did it. I realized that what helped me the most was a challenge. So we've created a challenge for you to help you lose your mental belly. Simply go to menopausemovement.com forward slash challenge to sign up. I'll see you there. Hey, what's up, Menopod? Dr. G here. Welcome to another episode of the Menopause Movement Podcast. Now, as you know, my son Alex was diagnosed with cancer when he was just a toddler. And it was a frightening time in my life and in his life and our whole family, actually. We had endless doctor visits and hospital stays with painful procedures and toxic chemicals just to keep him alive. I had so much anxiety and I couldn't think of anything else but his death for the first few months of the illness. It was awful. But I didn't like how that felt, and I went looking for a way to manage that anxiety. The first step for me was awareness, awareness of my thoughts and the actions that came from them. When it comes to menopause and life, the only constant is change. And what I'm here to tell you is that change is possible, but it won't happen overnight. The first step to any change is making the decision to change, and then we have to back that up with action. And that's the big challenge, right? How do we take any action? And even more importantly, what actions do we need to take? The menopause movement is here to help you with all of that. Menopause can be a time of misery, or it can be a time of unapologetic action toward creating a life we love. Now, I woke up in the middle of my menopausal journey, hating myself, my body, and the life I had created. I didn't know what to do, so I started questioning, and I started to figure out how to make change happen. And the result was the menopause movement and this podcast. And the menopause movement has one purpose, to help end the suffering caused by menopause through transformational education and coaching. And we want to help you too. So head on over to menopausemovement.com, take the quiz that's there on the page, and not only will you discover your type, but we'll also tailor some offerings just to help you start to get your life back from menopause. Getting into the driver's seat of my life was the first step I took to overcome the changes and the challenges I experienced with menopause. I did it alone and it was really lonely. But the menopause movement has created a community of women who are unapologetically deciding to become their best selves, one small action at a time. And you can too. Join our community and start to create a life you love. Now, so many women in menopause complain about how weight is their biggest struggle and it was mine too. But what if everything you've learned about weight management from our government, from our schools, is not the best way to go about it? And what if the way you've been eating actually promotes disease, like cancer? That's what we're going to talk about today with registered dietitian and low-carb advocate, Martha Tettenborn. 
She's a certified uh, primal health coach as well as a dietitian. She's got over 30 years experience working in many areas of nutrition. She currently works in long-term care with a focus on nursing homes and gerontology. Her private health coach practice, The Cancer Doula, promotes a low-carb, whole foods-based approach to disease prevention and cancer symptom management. When she was diagnosed with stage one ovarian cancer, Martha began exploring the research of the disease and discovered the science of cancer metabolism. This led her to develop and use a protocol of ketogenic diet with targeted therapeutic fasting to significantly impact her response to chemotherapy. Now inspired by her own journey, Martha wants to help others see cancer differently as an experience that will give you strength, wisdom, and more love for your body and life than ever before. She's a cancer survivor since 2018. She's an avid hiker, cyclist, live theater, backstage crew member, and a wannabe world adventurer. She lives on the beautiful Bruce Peninsula in central Ontario, Canada with her husband, Mike, a noisy cockatiel named Ziggy and a flock of backyard chickens. During the podcast, we talk about nutrition education in the 1980s, the history of governmental food policy, how Martha became an advocate for natural fats, the solo trip that changed her life, hiking Machu Picchu, in addition to that, Martha's diagnosis of ovarian cancer and how it changed her, the dangers of sugar, especially for people with cancer, the poison of seed oils, and the inflammation they cause. And stay to the end to find out how to love yourself in any circumstance. And remember, the most important relationship we have in life is the one we have with ourselves. At the end of the episode, visit menopausemovement.com forward slash podcast, where you can find the show notes, plus the links to the books and resources mentioned in the episode. And if you enjoy this episode, please leave a written, written review and subscribe on YouTube or subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. So you're always the first to know when each episode is released and so other people can find it and get the help they need. And let me know who should I have on the podcast next and what can I do to make it better? I want to hear from you. So send me a DM on Instagram at Dr. Michelle Gordon. That's D-R-M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-G-O-R-D-O-N. Or on Facebook at Dr. Michelle Gordon, where you can talk to me directly. And if you send an email to Dr. Gordon, drgordon at menopausemovement.com, you'll also get me. Thanks for being a part of the menopause movement. Now let's get to Martha. So Martha, welcome to the Menopause Movement Podcast. I'm super excited to have you here. It's Tettenborn, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Right on. All right. So you're a nutritionist. You're a registered nutritionist. And you've made a lot of changes in your life because of circumstances. And so when you went through nutritional school, nutritional training school, what did you learn? Oh, well... I started university in 1980, which was the year that the McGovern Commission came out with their low-fat guidelines for all Americans, everybody over the age of two, and that in turn affected all Western medicine. I'm Canadian, so the Canadians also adopted the American guidelines, and as did the British and the Australians and everybody basically in the world. But it was considered cutting-edge science. We felt like we were on the edge of something incredibly new and powerful and different, and that's how I was taught. That's how I practiced for probably the first 20 years of my practice, and you know, I worked in acute care, and I worked in home care, and 
and I did some private practice and stuff over my many years as a dietitian. Uh, most of the time, I really wasn't very successful in truly yeah. helping people to be better. I mean, acute care medicine, yes, if you have to help somebody with tube feedings or that sort of stuff, there's still an important role there. But in terms of chronic disease, no. The whole idea that we had to change people's cholesterol was misguided. But of course, that's what we were all yeah. aiming to do. And yet we weren't overly successful at it. Weight loss? No. Diabetes? Yeah. No. <laughs> so let's talk for a second about what the McGovern Commission did. So this guy, Ansel Keys, decides to do a study called the Seven Nations Study. Ansel Keys wasn't even a nutrition scientist. He was an eel biologist, actually kind of an electrophysiologist type guy. And so he does this super bad study that's filled with bullshit. And he ends up making this assumption that fat is bad. And that assumption then trickles down into our farm and nutrition science, pseudoscience, as it were. And the Western world, starting with America, becomes the biggest nutrition experiment ever in the history of the world. And so we go from eating things that were local and raised on the farm and eggs and bacon and that sort of thing to having manufactured cereal and Crisco and, and all the bad things and, and being told by our government that it's good because we had a lot of trust in government back then. So I just want to make sure that the audience has that history. Yep. And, and it goes back <laughs> further than that, too, when you go back to like Harvey Kellogg and the Seventh-day Adventist movement and the idea that, that meat was too exciting for your body. People weren't supposed to be excited and they weren't supposed to be passionate and they weren't supposed to have sexual drives and all that kind of stuff. So by eating dry cereal, you could actually like tamp down all that. That was sort of Harvey Kellogg approach. So that came even before the Ansel Keys thing, right? But I mean, while Kellogg's, you know, Kellogg obviously made Kellogg's cereal and that's great. And he did have an impact. It wasn't as big of an impact as, as Ansel Keys, no. who was named Time's Man of the Year and the whole gamut. But it is interesting that the Seventh-day Adventists did have a role in creating food policy in, in America. And what's really funny is I had, I was born with a heart defect. I had a, an atrial septal defect for, for those of you who are, who don't understand that that's like a hole between the very two top chambers of the heart. And when I went for my very first heart catheterization, when I was 18 years old, they had an option called Loma Linda. And Loma Linda is a town in Southern California that is very Seventh-day Adventist. And there's a hospital there and, and you can't even get meat there. And so it was like this texturized soy protein. And at the time, of course, I was a vegetarian because I thought that was the right way to eat. And I ate it and it actually wasn't horrible, but yeah, so <laughs> soy. Anyway, uh, it, it's just kind of funny because the influence that they had on food policy. All right, so what happens then? How did you become a renegade low carb dietitian? Because this is so fascinating to me. <laughs> It started in, I guess, about 2007. And I have spent most of my adult life struggling with the same 20 pounds that is more than what sort of is cosmetically ideal. It's not enough to impact on my health. I've, I have just stellar health most of my life. But, you know, I fought with not being as thin as I thought I wanted to be. And so I was always someone who was looking for something else, not professionally, but so much as personally. 
And I started out by discovering a, a crazy little guy named Seth Roberts, who had a little a diet called the Shangri-La diet. And basically his theory was that there was a set point that you had to impact in order to allow your body to lose weight. And when I started looking into the stuff that he, it was pretty out there. But by using his principles, I did lose like 18 pounds that I hadn't been able to budge any other way. And one of the ways that I did that was by using more fat. And that was sort of the beginning of my mind opening, I guess you would say, to allow me to get past that dogma that said that fat is evil and all fat mm. is evil. And like it worked. <laughs> that, that's what kind of blew my mind. So I started looking more into this concept that maybe we didn't know everything. And that led me to Mark's Daily Apple, Mark Sisson and the primal blueprint and that primal way of life and the whole concept of ancestral eating. In other words, looking at what humans have done for two and a half million years to become the animal with the biggest brain and the most successful animal on the planet, I mean, you can argue that in terms of how we're destroying the planet and all that, but <laughs> that's a conversation for another day. But the concept that we grew this entire huge, massive brain and all the things that we've done with it based on this diet that we've created over 200,000, 500,000, a million, actually about two and a half million if you go right back right. to the savanna, that we became the apes that ate meat and that we became the creatures that that could cook meat and cook food to make it more bioavailable and, and all that kind of stuff. And then you compare that to what we've done in the last hundred years with processing food and creating foods that have never been part of the human food chain ever, ever, ever before, like Crisco and, <laughs> and you know, high fructose corn syrup how we've somehow thought that those were better, like these created things were better. And then almost made bad to eat things that were ancestral and better to eat things that were created, air quotes. <laughs> right. But yeah, so I think I think there's an opportunity here to talk about like what happened with not just Ansel Keys, but even going back further, that the issue was we have a policy that demonizes fat. But then on top of that, we also have policy that really glorifies science. And so it's not only, hey, eat this, not that. It's this is manufactured and science is awesome. And we just made it to the moon and, and all these things. And so if you're just new to the podcast, make sure you go and listen to Fat is Not the Enemy with Dr. Kate Shanahan, because we talk about the history of, of fats in that episode. What is really interesting to me is understanding as I started my menopause journey and starting to understand how to eat is that the, the fats that we use are what the building blocks of our steroids, our hormones. And then if you're eating these manufactured crap fats, and again, remember there's three C's and three S's. That's corn, canola, cottonseed, safflower, sunflower, and soy. So if you cut nothing else out of your diet, cut those because they are really bad and they, they interfere with everything, cause inflammation. And so I think that there's just a, a place to really talk about the glorification of science. And, and don't get me wrong, science is awesome. Science is amazing. And science has taught us all about what's happening in the space between our atoms and how the universe works and how we can get, get things in our lives just by thinking, right? Mm -hmm. But 
<laughs> we also have to be super careful about what we choose to put in our mouths because we still are physical and we still have software that's used to real stuff. Uh, the other podcast I want to ask people to, to go and listen to is regional eating and how it can help you with Ka- uh, Kathleen uh, Finley <clears throat> because that's all talking about going locally and eating locally. So what I want to ask you is, what about ancestral eating and what about our current food supply? What changed for you? Well, it started with the sugar, taking out sugar, understanding that there was a problem with sugar, I guess, because as dietitians, we didn't really think there was anything wrong with sugar. The only thing that was absolutely connected to sugar, according to the science when I was in school, was dental caries, nothing else right? So that started with the sugar. Then I learned more about the industrial seed oils and the polyunsaturated fats as opposed to saturated and healthy natural fats that come from animals. And then the third one was the grains, the industrial grains that are produced with heavy use of glyphosate, the Roundup, the Monsanto glyphosate. And the fact that that is probably a lot of what is involved in the grain intolerance that we see in so many people these days. So switching to when I do use grains, I use organic grains. I think, well, we have an opportunity to talk about that because when I go to Europe, when I eat bread in France, if I have a butter croissant in France, I don't have bloating. I don't have weird digestive like diarrhea or anything like that. It's it's like just yummy. <laughs> South America too. Yeah. I, I hiked Machu Picchu with my best friend in 2015 and she's completely sensitive up in Canada and down there we could eat everything including the puffy white bread it was fine and I had read about that online so I had suggested that we try it when we were there I always have been someone that feels better not eating a lot of regular wheat and both of us we, I mean, when you're hiking the Inca Trail, you eat whatever they put in front of you, right? Absolutely. So, I can imagine. I, yeah. I, I want to hear a little bit more. I mean, I love to travel and I haven't done Machu Picchu, and, but I've been to Antarctica and I've been so, oh, yeah, lovely. yeah. We were there just before the pandemic. I mean, it was just, it was in evolution. Oh. So we left uh, Santiago in February of 2020 and then the world went crazy. So Sure did. Yeah. So I just would love to hear a little bit about the Inca Trail. I mean, I know that this is, we're, we're talking about diet and stuff, but I just, I, you know, what's that like and how long did it take and what, oh. how, how did your life change as a result of doing it? Well, you know, we've always been a household that decided that we weren't going to wait till we retired to travel and enjoy life, partly because my husband's entire extended family is over in Europe and Germany. And so we've gone back and forth and we've sent a child there for a year to high school and we took in a cousin, a nephew for a year to go to high school here in Ontario. And so we were fairly connected. But I've also done a lot of development work where I've gone to Central America, usually Guatemala or Honduras, and we go down for two weeks and we work with the local people and we build something like a a home or a community center or something like that. And I've been doing that since about 2000. So When I turned 50, I decided I was going to do a big trip and I was going to do it by myself. And I went to Guatemala for three weeks alone. I'd never traveled alone, been with my husband since I was a teenager, never traveled alone. It was life-changing to be completely on my own, right? I wasn't mom. I wasn't wife. I wasn't financial manager. I wasn't the dietitian. I wasn't, I didn't have my church responsibilities. I had nothing. It was just me in the moment, right? It was amazing. 
So when I was turning 55, I wanted to do something big and I decided I was wanted to hike the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu. And my best friend decided she would come with me. We'd been friends since grade seven. <laughs> and so the two of us went to Peru for three weeks. So again, the, the Inca Trail itself is a four day hike. It's 42 kilometers. It's in the high mountains. So the air is fairly thin and you do a couple of really high passes where the air is very thin. The Inca Trail is, it's stone. It's paved with rough stone and most of it is steps and they're not even steps. They're up and they're down and they're all over and you're climbing around the edges of mountains. And it makes me think of the Colosseum. Have you been to the Colosseum in Rome? I have not. So the no. Colosseum in Rome has these steps, right? If you think about doing a lunge, think about how far you, you put your leg forward when you do a lunge. It's like every step is like a lunge up. It's just not, yeah. not they don't even feel human. And <laughs> it's like, were people giants back? then and so I can imagine that that some of the steps are like that right where they like kind of high up or, yeah. yeah yeah and and uneven and the Mayan pyramids that I've been on have been like that too yeah. and the Incan pyramids they're just like yeah anyways yeah so it's a four-day hike we did it with a organization that takes people on hikes which sure. is pretty much the only way you can do it so there's porters that carry the tents and that bring you meals and that kind of stuff so you have a day pack poles we were in a group of six and so there was Laura and I at 55 and then there was two 30-year-old couples from one was from Australia one was from Europe and they were way younger way faster the German guy was like six foot seven. Oh my <laughs> yeah um, but you know we kept up we I mean we hung back sometimes but it, it was an amazing experience just to be able to do it to see the, the the mountains the Andes and to experience the history it was absolutely I loved it wow. but it was only one part of that three weeks we did Lima Cusco, the Sacred Valley, the four days on the Inca Trail. And then we took a bus to Lake Titicaca and we went, went out on the lake and stayed overnight in, in a private home out there. And then we went to the Colca Canyon, which is the second deepest canyon on the planet. It's about twice as deep as the Grand Canyon, believe it or not. Spent a few days kind of recovering there. And then we went to Arequipa, which is a colonial city, very beautiful colonial city, and the heart of the alpaca yarn industry. Oh. In in Peru. Wow. Big knitter here. This was a really big deal for me. <laughs> I mean, I came home with two kilograms of yarn. Wow. In carry-on luggage. Heavy. Like I, we had nothing but carry-on the whole trip, right? Yeah. For three weeks, hiking and everything. So yeah, it was a it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And again, just being able to step out of everything in your life and do something entirely for yourself that's very physically challenging and mentally challenging. Yeah, I'd recommend it to anybody. <laughs> yeah, one of the things I want to do, I mean, I want to do Machu Picchu, but I also want to do the, what is it, Camino Real? Camino de Santiago. Oh, Camino Me de Santiago. Yeah, that's it. Camino de Santiago. Yeah, so I'd love yeah. to do that. I mean, that's a like a three-week hike. Yeah, so those are those are some of the things that are on my bucket list. I mean, I've, I've done all the luxurious trips all over the world, and now I want to do, I mean, after doing some adventure trips. We went to the Arctic in 2018. And then we went to Antarctica at the end of 2019 into 2020. And I was like, I don't want to do luxury trips anymore. I just want to like do adventure. I've never done luxury trips. Yeah. I, I visit family or I go to a third world country and I live in a local village and build things. Fun. Like shovel cement. Like we build cement on the ground in a in a crater, you know, like in a, a volcano. 
and and I've hiked up some volcanoes, which is very, in Central America, which is very cool too. So neat. We're we're not luxury trip kind of people. In fact, in about three hours, we're driving off to go camping. Oh, fun! <laughs> I, yeah, I like camping. I used to camp. I, I grew up in Washington State, and so we we did a lot of camping. I mean, it's just kind of part of the culture. You know, you go you go to the mountains because there's like real mountains there. Yeah. So to get back to diet and diet and, and the best way to eat, especially if 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 you've been diagnosed with cancer, let's talk a little bit about what happened with you and 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 how you know you were you understood sugar but then you had some other things happen i had been doing low carb nutrition for a couple of years i mean my day job is in long-term care okay i work in nursing homes but i had done some extra certification through the primal health coach institute to get a low carb certification on top of the my rd and I started a private practice. And so I was well-versed in low-carb ancestral type stuff, dabbled in ketosis, see what that was like, and so on. You know, self-experimenter, right? Sure. Like a lot of people. So three years ago this month, actually, I discovered that I had a huge ovarian cyst in my abdomen. Mm. I discovered that by, by Laura, my same girlfriend, sending me a text message and said, so what are you up to on your plank? Because we'd been kind of challenging each other with a plank. I hadn't done one in like a month. I'd been I'd kind of fallen off the wagon. So I immediately got off the couch and laid on the floor and, and went to do a plank. And the moment I laid down, there was a bulge in my abdomen that had never been there before. Mm. I felt like I was laying on an egg. I mean, something was obviously wrong. I got up, called my doctor. Got, got an appointment. It took a few more days, but we ha- I had an ultrasound and we determined that it was about a 15 centimeter ovarian cyst. Was it solid or liquid? Liquid. Okay. Water filled, very simple. She said, you know, it's big enough that it has to come out. And so she referred me to the local gynecologist and we did the blood work to see whether there was an elevation in the cancer marker for ovarian cancer. Mm -hmm. And it was only marginally elevated, like just barely above normal. So that wasn't any sort of a red flag for anybody. It was summer in Canada. So I mean, summer is like so brief up here that everything just kind of the doctor was on holiday. So you just wait for her, that kind of stuff. And I live in a pretty rural area. So it's not like we had a whole lot of options. So it took two months and then I got the cyst uh, laparoscopically removed. So they ruptured it inside of me and it was way too big. Like I was five months pregnant at yeah. this point. I had to, I had to pull up my waistband when I sat down because the, the bulge was above my my navel. So they ruptured it. They took it out. Then they called me six days later and said, the doctor wants to see you. Come tomorrow morning, bring your husband. Wow. And I kind of went, oh shit. Yeah. Because I... And, I mean, I work in healthcare. I knew exactly what that meant. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was. It was stage one ovarian cancer. I feel incredibly grateful and lucky that I was caught at stage one because about 75% of women who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer are diagnosed at stage three or stage four. Yeah. And at that point, it's a difficult process, and it is considered one of the deadlier cancers yeah. because of that. Yeah, it's... It's it's a it it is difficult to to diagnose. It can be because you know you may not have pain and you may just present like you did with a big you know the big cyst up to your the top of your belly, and that's I had no pain yeah ever yeah and then it just grows and so if there's no pain it can really it can be really hard to diagnose and yeah. and so you know it's it's kind of I mean we talk about self breast exam right we talk about that as part of like our monthly health care and one thing that we don't notice necessarily is you know what's happening in our bellies. 
And I'll just share this real quickly. I mean, I didn't have cancer, but I had, I, I was getting a massage and the guy touched my belly and it was, it felt weird. I, I was like, this is strange. Why does it feel that way? And then I felt a mass in my belly, like up to almost, almost my sternum. And it was a huge fibroid that I ended up having an operation. Well, it wasn't really an operation. I had a uterine artery ablation, but you know, but I didn't, I mean, I didn't notice it until it had filled my abdomen. And I was like, this is, this is crazy. And so in, in the mm-hmm. same way, thank God your friend told you to go do a plank. I know yeah. because there's nothing in my life that makes me lay down on my belly. I'm not, yeah. I don't have grandchildren. I don't have puppies. I, you know, like yeah. I just, I don't, and I don't sleep on my stomach. So it just didn't happen in, yeah. until that text message came. So, I mean, a lot, I just, like say, I feel very blessed. What I have found is that ovarian cancer is considered the cancer that whispers mm. because the symptoms of it are so nondescript and most women just write it off. Oh, I feel bloaty. Oh, I, you know, my appetite's not great. Oh, I'm a little constipated, whatever. They just think it's part of menopause or being a woman or, you know, my life's too stressful or something. And so they write it off until it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. We, we Well, and, I think, I think there's more to it than that. I think, and we try to address this at the menopause moment, but what, what I think is really happening is we live in a patriarchy. We are raised to serve men and, and I'm not against men. People don't, don't think I hate men. I don't hate men. But we are kind of raised in a way that, that we're supposed to serve them. And so as like from my, my experience growing up, I, I grew up in Washington State, not too far from Canada. We visited Canada a lot. And, and so what <laughs> I like to consider myself a, an honorary Canadian. I know, I know all your anthems and how you do your school system and whatnot. But anyway. That's awesome. Yeah. But, but I'll, I'll tell you, I live about 5,000 kilometers away from that part of Canada. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah I, I know. But I mean, it's just Canada is so awesome because what I love about Canada is people are really nice. People are just nice and polite and it hasn't, I mean, yeah, you can get into Toronto and maybe have some people who are maybe not so nice, but it's not, it, I, I just, I just find people, it's just a nice place to visit. And, you know, I, I really, I've always loved Canada, but anyway, I'm digressing. So what I want to say for women, you know, not only are we, we have a, a cycle where when we're, when we're fertile, we shed part of our uterine lining and that can be painful. It, we're, we're taught that that particular thing to have a lot of pain and have it be debilitating is okay and normal. And, and so when it comes to really trying to pay attention to our bodies, we, we get to a point where it, maybe we just numb it out. We don't, we don't think about it. And then, you know, by the time we catch it, like you said, it's too late. Again, we're not here to cause alarm. Okay, that's not what we're here to do. But we also want to bring awareness to you to start to pay attention to your body. And if something doesn't feel right, go and get it checked out because who knows? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And don't just rely on Dr. Google because, of course, I went straight to Dr. Google. Of course you did. And I, by the time I went to see my doc a few days later, I was pretty certain that I had a uterine fibroid and was probably going to have to come out. And she did the exam and kind of went, ooh, um, mm, er," you know, made a bunch of kind of not great noises and and sent me off for an ultrasound. So the rest is, as they say, is history. And yeah, so once, because they ruptured the cyst in my abdomen, it was considered a spill, even though it was stage one. Sure. And therefore, I was referred on for oncology consult. And for me, that involved driving three hours to the nearest regional cancer center. Mm -hmm. 
and meeting with an oncologist there. So I ended up having further surgery. I had a full hysterectomy and that sort of completed the standard of care for ovarian cancer. They didn't they didn't do chemo inside? Well, not at that point. Okay. I was highly recommended to do chemo. Well, I'm talking about chemo, and, intraoperative chemo. That's something that they do now, but maybe not for stage one. So they, they no. put they, they instill chemo into the abdomen and then remove it. Yes. Yeah. So I had one of my chemos interperitoneally. Oh, okay. So you did. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So, but that was an every three weeks thing that they would put chemo in interperitoneally. Because of the spill. Yeah. When they took because out your, of, when they took, this is me, the surgeon and me coming out and asking these questions. So if you don't feel like answering it, well, you know, we can always have the team cut it out, but... I, I like to totally. ask. Yeah, I, I geek out on medical. Yeah, no, stuff too, I like to worry. ask these questions. Like, so did they do washings, and did they find did they find cells on your diaphragm when they did your washings? As far as I know, I didn't hear about any washings. Okay, but it may have been part of the surgery. I had say the first surgery was taking out the the ovaries and the tubes mm-hmm. laparoscopically, so the rupture and and then withdrawing the deflated cyst. Turned out both the ovaries had cysts on them. Mm. They took off a liter and a half of fluid, so it. Was, oh, you must you know, have felt so became, much better afterwards. Yeah. I mean, you you feel really sore, even though the incisions oh. are like an inch long, yeah. right? Yeah. You feel really sore. Yeah. But I didn't really get a chance to get feeling a lot better because then six days later, they called and told me I had cancer. So yeah. it's like... All right. So here... So so you go you go to chemo, you get your cancer diagnosis, and then now you're a nutritionist, a dietitian, and you're like, okay, this must have led you down a research path. Oh, rabbit hole. Absolutely. <laughs> Because I was already low carb focused, right? right? And I was already understanding that the conventional wisdom was not adequate in terms of treatment. Yeah. So, but I mean, as a dietitian, all we'd ever really learned about cancer was help people to manage to get enough food in to maintain their weight despite the side effects and try and prevent cachexia. Right. That's so, all we were, you know, ever c- given. And of course, cachexia, we, we, we have to define that for our listeners, cachexia. Yeah, cachexia is the wasting of body tissue that happens in advanced cancer. You, you waste both your muscle tissue and your fat tissue. Yeah. And so that skeletal sort of look that you see in someone with advanced cancer, that's cachexia. And it's not strictly a lack of calories problem. It is an actual hormonal metabolic problem that is part of the cancer. So it's not just about not getting enough to eat. Right. But as a dietitian, we were never taught that. Of course not. Right. No, it was all about getting enough in. So, I mean, the guidelines were high protein, high calorie, add sugar to things, add honey to things, add cream and butter and, you know, like put in as make things as nutrient dense as possible. And then of course, use commercial nutritional supplement products. Right. Right. I won't name any brands, but I mean, everybody kind of knows what they are. Yeah, but those, those are just and, like sugar and vegetable oil in a bottle. Oh, I mean, they're totally, just, they're poison. You know, they're, they're not, totally, they're not really totally made for nutrition. Horrible chemical. Yeah. 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 Like everything that we don't want to eat in terms of processed healthy foods, that's what they use to make nutritional supplements Yeah, because they break everything down to its most basic components and then they try and put it back together into a vanilla flavored drink. Right. Right. It's disgusting. So, yeah. so let's, let's talk a little bit about if you're not di- diagnosed with cancer, like how can we start to eat now to support our metabolism? Well, the things we've 
kind of talked about and the things you've talked about on some of your other shows, which is number one, cut out the sugar and the highly refined carbohydrates. If you're drinking soda, stop drinking soda. I mean, if there's only one thing that everybody takes away from this is stop drinking soda. (laughs) Cut out the sugar because cancer feeds on sugar. Cancer cells require sugar in order to metabolize at the rate that they are genetically forced to to metabolize. They have no off switch. They have no ability to turn themselves down when the fuel isn't there. So they're desperate for fuel and sugar is their preferred fuel. So keeping your blood sugar low, keeping spikes out of your blood sugar after meals and things, that's an important thing you can do to help everything about your health, but particularly if you happen to have cancer. Secondly, use only the healthy animal-based or possibly olive oil or coconut oil um, fats, not the industrial seed oil fats that are created from um, grains, most of which in the North American's food supply particularly will be GMO grains, which means that they're heavily glyphosate sprayed. Take those things out of your diet because Every cell membrane in your body is made up of those fatty acids. And if you have crap fatty acids going in, then you have crap fatty acids in every cell membrane in your body. And I mean, as you mentioned, the hormones are all built on fats and cholesterol, but the fatty acids are actually used for cell membranes. And because cancer is an uncontrolled growth, they are building new cellular material all the time. So they're looking for those fuels. So you want to keep your your healthy cells as healthy as possible using natural fats. And you want to keep the the crap fats out of your diet. So that's... Yeah, I I love that. Dr. Kate says, you know, and I I got this from her, that nature doesn't make bad fats. Nature doesn't make bad fats. So any animal fat, any fat that comes from an animal... Meaning, you know, even even butter, lard, beef tallow. Yeah, beef tallow, cream. Yeah. You know, I mean, there, the dairy has its own set of problems because we're the only species that eats another species milk, right? And so dairy is, if you're having cancer, dairy is probably something you want to stay away from. Butter's probably okay, but actual milk and milk products, uh, some of the research shows that cancer grows in the in the presence of the milk protein called casein. So probably better to stay off of that. But more to to your point of you know, cutting out sugar, the thing is, is that, so sugar and vegetable oil, I, I mean, I'm talking about that all the time. And the thing is, is that your body, you guys, change is not easy. Change, you know, I talk about it at the beginning of the podcast. I talk about it through the podcast. The menopause movement helps you make changes that you need to make in your life. That's what we're here for, right? And changes is hard, but, but in order to keep going in the change to increase your own self-efficacy, it's so, so, so important to have that goal to remember what why you're doing it and there's it's really hard to have a, a stronger motivator than your own life <laughs> you know <laughs> I mean that's well said yeah <laughs> I mean you know if, if you continue to do the same things you've been doing especially if you're you know if you're dealing with cancer right now you know, you're, you're probably just going to end up having more problems with it and so right now we're giving you a tool that you can use in your in your life to maybe even avoid cancer I mean, I can't guarantee that because there's multi, it's multifactorial, but, but at the end of the day, it, the more inflammation you can reduce by eating healthy food, the less your chances are. 
The third thing is the toxins, and that's where using or if you're going to use grain products yeah. or agricultural products, use organic as much as you can, particularly to avoid glyphosate and other toxic chemicals that are used on industrial agricultural yeah, products. I actually buy yeah. flour on Amazon that comes from France. Do you? I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah. Uh, so if I ever I, have I a buy organic bread and organic yeah. cereal for my husband who still likes to use those things, yeah. just to try and keep you know an organic flour. But I live where I can buy local organic flour too. So if I, if I ever have a hankering for bread, if I want to make bread, I mean, made bread at the beginning of the pandemic. I was like, I got to make bread. Like I like a lot of people got back into making bread. <laughs> you and everybody yeah, else. Yeah. <laughs> so I made my own bread and it was really yummy. But then I was like, I don't feel so good. So I, I got this flour from France. So I should probably use it before it goes bad. So we did talk a little bit about, about how we ignore our bodies. Let's just talk about, let's talk for a minute about things that you've done to keep yourself going, you know, in terms of, you know, really, really the way you've chosen to think through managing this, this setback in your life. It was huge for me. I identified as being extremely healthy. I was trying to establish a private practice based on low carb that was all about, you know, aging awesomely. And I felt spectacularly healthy. I mean, I'm not a super exerciser or anything, but I've always felt really well. And I've always had the energy to do the things I want to do and been very grateful for that. When I was diagnosed with cancer, it was a major blow to my sense of self-identity and, you know, both personally and professionally. And so I had to come to terms with that. Did you have to work through a a sense of failure? Like, like you'd failed yourself or? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And how do I go forward being somebody who exemplifies great health when I have this now in my history, right? Like I, I say in my book, like when you are diagnosed with cancer, you change permanently. It's like becoming a parent. You are never again, not a person with cancer. Even if it's in your remote history, it's always there. When it first happens, it's like an elephant in the room. It just like plunks itself down into the center of your life and takes up all the space, mentally, emotionally, time-wise, everything, right? And you have to come to terms with that. You you have to make room for it. I had to give up a lot of the hats that I wear in order to make room for cancer Mm. and the cancer treatment and that process. And so that was a process. I had to tell people that's a process because when you tell people you have and I didn't know this before you have to absorb their reaction to what you're telling them Mm. so it's like I have cancer oh you poor dear you know and then you have to kind of go but it you know it's okay it's stage one like things are good you know so then it's like my job to make them feel better right yeah and I didn't I didn't get that before it happened to me. Yeah, it's yeah, it is a it is hard when I mean, my son had cancer when he was a baby and so I I when when you have a little a little child who's just learning how to walk who then gets diagnosed with cancer it's almost like it's you. I mean that's that's how you know I was in my 30s and, and he's okay so he's 28 years old now and he's he's got some medical problems but he's not dead. And so I I get what you're saying there and I wanted to to say that there there is an opportunity here to talk a little bit about how obstacles present to us in our lives. And an obstacle will present to itself to us and then we can choose how to deal with it. You know, in your case, you said, I have to absorb this, right? Ryan Holiday wrote this book called The Obstacle is the Way. And that's the way that really about the Stoics and how really help you understand that, that you've got to move through it. And when you, when you uh, embrace, you know, especially like a diagnosis like that, 
when you embrace it and then you say, okay, what's my next step? Because I remember when they diagnosed my son with cancer, I was like, holy shit, you know, he had a 50% chance of living. I was like, okay, well, what can I do to keep him alive? And how can I, and I swear it was like, it was all just sheer willpower more than anything else. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, so, so not to minimize your story, because I know that, you know, any, any diagnosis of cancer is life changing. And what it does is it, is it, it, like you said, I mean, I love that it changes who you're being. It just, just in, in the same yeah. profound way as, as parenting and anyone who's had a child knows that you just become a different person and there's no one else you love more ever ever no and your children and even when your child's an adult and yeah, even when even matter. if they've died ahead of you you never stop being a parent right yeah you know yeah. and that's that's kind of what cancer feels like 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 i i described that as time goes on that elephant shrinks down until it's like an ornament that you put on your shelf and it's always yeah. part of your room it's there but it's something that you now just kind of you acknowledge it's there but it's doesn't take up all the space anymore. Yeah. Right. But for me, because of what I discovered in terms of doing the research and the fact that I had nutritional interventions that I could put in place that impacted on my journey through the cancer and cancer treatment, I started a blog because I wanted, well, first of all, I was pissed off that as a dietitian, I didn't know this stuff. Yep. How come we don't know this stuff? How come this isn't common knowledge that cancer has a disordered metabolism that because it's metabolism, you can affect it by what you eat. Yep. And because if you solve it, then 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 who's going to profit? If you solve it with diet, who's going to profit? And and I'm not yeah, a conspiracy. No I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I really am not. I I don't I don't go for conspiracy theories. But I do understand business and I understand profit. And if yep. if we if we suppress yep. if we suppress things like eat healthy, you know, then we're going to sell more chemo. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> It's very true. I mean, and you and the things that you can't patent, like a ketogenic diet or yeah. off-label use of metformin or high-dose intravenous vitamin C, you can't patent those things. Therefore, you can't make mega bucks on them. So there, there isn't even the impetus to do the basic research to support those things, yeah. right? Yeah. But me as an individual, I could try and get the message out. So I started a blog. I called it Powerful Beyond Measure. And I started just kind of blogging my own experience so that people would know things like, you know, the, the sort of the hidden aspects of ovarian cancer and, and then cancer metabolism. And, and then I got into how to impact on chemo side effects using intermittent fasting mm. and ketosis and how I could protect my healthy cells using ketosis, being in a state of ketosis, and then using fasting right around the chemo itself. And after I blogged for a while, somebody sort of said, you know, you should write a book. Yeah. So I started writing a book. Lord knows I had the time because I had I'd cleared away all these other responsibilities, you know, my church responsibilities and my volunteering responsibilities and half of my nursing homes. And so I, I, had, I had time. And so I started putting together um, the book that became Hacking Chemo so that people would be able to, you know, so I'd be able to get the message out to more people. Yeah. And then, of course, I'm doing podcasts and stuff to support sure. getting the message out because people need to know they have this power. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th th that's the whole idea, y'all, th that you do have the power. You you know, one thing that we can choose, There's there's... It's hard to choose your thoughts, even though your thoughts are what create your reality. It can be hard. That takes discipline. 
but you can definitely, definitely control what you put in your mouth. And and yeah, I get it. I, I eat mindlessly too. And you guys, I still eat potato chips sometimes. I do. And and it's and it's okay. You know, and sometimes I still eat those <laughs> shitty seed oils. I, I'll admit it. I do because they, you know, they're odorless, they're tasteless, and they're cheap. And sometimes I really want potato chips and I'll just eat them. I get it. However, every time I do that, when I go for a run, my feet start to fall asleep. Oh. Yeah, it's really crazy. It's really when I when I'm not careful with my diet, I go running and my feet fall asleep. And it's my body telling me, hey, you know, what are you doing? Pay attention. Don't eat this crap. And so, yeah. <laughs> you know, at, at the end of the day, if you want to feel healthy, you, you got to start somewhere. You got to start somewhere. So if you're not feeling healthy, start by cutting out your soda or s- something sugary. Start there. And if you fall off the wagon, it's okay because you can start again. And just remember, we have this simple, easy mental belly challenge that you can join in. It will support you for a whole 28 days. And you can actually start to, to make those changes, little changes, one little habit at a time. So make sure you check that out, menopausemovement.com forward slash challenge. Now, when it comes to the end, we're near the end here. What, what kind of parting thoughts do you have for our listeners today? I guess I want to say a couple of things. I want to say that people are incredibly more powerful than they think they are when it comes to making health decisions and having control over your own body. Yeah. Particularly postmenopausal women because we spend our whole lives like looking after other people. But we've got to we've got to realize the importance of what we do for ourselves and that we need to love ourselves. So we have diet as in what we put in from outside, but we also have what we consume in terms of our own thoughts. And so approaching everything in your life from a position of self-love and gratitude for what you have and always looking for the upside of what you have. I mean, I took a cancer diagnosis and turned it into a book. Yeah, and and it is. It, I, some people would kind of go, oh, you know, don't, don't you want to put the cancer behind you? Like, just pretend it never happened because it's been two and a half years now that uh, since I finished chemo. And it's like, but it changed me in my core, right? Mm-hmm. Into something different. And it, it took the passion that I had for low carb and it focused it in on that particular area. Yeah. And, and at that point, like two years ago, there really weren't people talking about low carb nutritional interventions around cancer and particularly around chemotherapy, the, like the using fasting around chemotherapy and stuff. Nobody had actually kind of championed that particular corner of you know, low carb nutrition. Yeah. And I just felt like there was a calling for me to be there. You can take whatever life throws at you and you can turn it into something wonderful. You have to keep a positive attitude. And and like I say, that's, that's your internal mental diet of positive self-talk. Cut out the sugar, cut out the oils, cut out the crap, cut out the negative self-talk. Yeah. I approached my cancer from a position of love. I, I just kind of wanted to, I call it the Marie Kondo version of uh, <laughs> cancer treatment. I would sort of go like, okay, what is this cancer teaching me, first of all? And secondly, as Marie Kondo says, you know, if there's something in your life that's not sparking joy, thank it for its time in your life and then let it go. Yeah. And that was kind of how I approached my cancer. Yeah, that's, I think that there's an opportunity here to just, just talk a little bit how we choose to be around, around any, anything. 
about around anything. So, so life is going to throw us circumstances, and we can either be a slave to the circumstances, or we can actually start to look for opportunities because things happen. They're neutral. They they just are. They all they always happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's okay to have a pity party for a little while. Of course, it's okay to acknowledge that these things suck. Sure. Right. But you can't stay there. You need to find something to move forward or move through. Like you, I have a, my son didn't have cancer, but I have a son with a a developmental disability. He's also now in his late 20s. And we started at about a year old, just as he was starting to walk with seizures. Mm -hmm. And, And it just kind of developed from there. But now he's adult developmentally challenged, lives independently in town on his own. He's wonderful. I still talk to him like six times a day because I'm still actively parenting him. But you know, that that journey has been so positive for me in so many ways. You you take what life gives you. I ended up as a Special Olympics coach for 10 years because because of him. Right? Like that's a whole field of my life that would have never happened if I didn't have a child with a disability. Yeah. This this being an author would never have happened without my cancer journey. So right. yeah, you you just you have to you have to roll with the punches and come back up standing and just keep going on and, and having as awesome a life as you can. I've said since the beginning that my goal in life is to live to 95 and die with my boots on. That's awesome. I've always said I was going to live to 150. The The universe is <laughs> going to put the things in front of you that, you that you're asking for. And believe it or not, you know, whatever you're asking for, you may not ask for cancer, but maybe you asked to be an author. And that's just how it came together. The, the universe doesn't really, it's so neutral, but it loves us. And so it will mm-hmm. it will make things happen in a way that sometimes we don't ever expect. And we just have to be a willing to pay attention to the opportunities. That's the main thing. Wow. Well, Martha. Be open to accept. Exactly. Yeah. Martha, thanks for being a part of the menopause movement today. It's been really, really fantastic talking to you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I have really enjoyed this and yeah. I love what you're doing. I love the idea of coming into your power as you age into menopause and into that wise woman stage of life. Thanks. And uh, everyone go buy Hacking Chemo. Uh, We'll hook it up in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. There it is. Hacking Chemo, using ketogenic diet, therapeutic fasting, and a kick-ass attitude (laughs) to power through cancer. Yeah, go get it. And uh, we'll hook that up in the show notes for everyone. Uh, Martha, thanks so much. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to have you back. I would love it. Did you know that menopause is not a medical condition? Most doctors don't know this either. I like to say that menopause is the privilege of a long life. And to really take hold of our lives in menopause, we have to unlearn what society and the medical establishment has told us about menopause. This is why I've created this brand new course called Understanding Your Hormones and Managing Your Menopause. I want to show you how you can get on top of your menopause right now so that you can start to see it as the best time of your life. Now, this course is valued at $500 and is in the beta testing phase. And we're currently accepting applications for women to test it out for us at no charge in exchange for feedback and testimonials. But the best part is because you're a podcast listener, you can bypass the application process and go straight to the front of the line. To register right now, simply visit menopausemovement.com forward slash hormones and we can get started together right now. 
Remember, you can get started right now at no charge to you in exchange for feedback and testimonials when you go to menopausemovement.com forward slash hormones. And I'll see you inside the course. Thanks so much for being a part of the menopause movement. Thank you.